Final Fantasy. It's a title you can't help but say with a little extra gravitas, and let's be honest, it's earned that distinction. Ever since debuting over 35 years ago, Square's premier franchise has been synonymous with the genre of RPGs, giving us a steady diet of memorable characters and incredibly complex, intricate stories about the nature of life, human existence, religion, and so much more. It is a series that is just as indistinguishable from video games as Mario and Zelda, and has gone on to expand into other forms of media like movies, books, and collectibles, just to name a few. I still remember when I was introduced to Final Fantasy. As a kid born in 1991, I've been playing video games for as long as I can remember, being introduced to them at three years old. My early childhood is marked with memories of Super Mario World, Pokemon, Crash Bandicoot, Donkey Kong, as well as memories playing those games with friends, some of whom I still count among my closest relationships to this day. But even in the year 2000, at the age of nine, when I played Final Fantasy IX for the first time in the basement of my cousin's house, I could tell this was different from any of the games I had played before. As a growing middle schooler, I was transfixed with stories of fantasy and imagination. I devoured every book my parents would get for me, even reading the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy in fifth grade. These stories had words I couldn't even comprehend at the time, but I couldn't pull my eyes away from them. The complexity and intensity of those stories had, for me, always been the realm of books, TV, and movies. But Final Fantasy IX was the first time I had ever experienced that type of depth and intricacy in a video game. And considering video games were an interactive medium, this revolutionized and changed the way I consume stories. You're telling me I can live out the story on screen, pretending to be the hero and making the decisions that propel the narrative forward? It was a revelation that would have a profound effect on my life establishing and cementing RPGs as one of my favorite video game genres, and video games as my preferred medium of content consumption. Even to this day, FF9 remains one of my favorite works of fiction ever, leaving an indelible mark that has influenced the way I think about the very nature of life and my relationships with others. Many others in the fandom have expressed similar feelings, describing the bonds they feel between the stories of their favorite Final Fantasy characters and their life. So yeah, this franchise means a lot to a lot of people. It is venerated in the industry as one of the benchmarks of storytelling and presentation despite the negative reception of the last few mainline entries. When a new mainline Final Fantasy is announced, everyone, fans and critics alike, take notice. Final Fantasy has always been unique among video games and the inevitable sequels that would follow. Rather than tell a continuous story with the characters that were established in previous titles, the series always chose to have mainline entries be narratively and mechanically different from one another. Sure, there are some consistent themes throughout all of the stories, with most games containing a collection of monsters, characters, moves, and other entities that have become staples with each successive release. We couldn't possibly imagine Final Fantasy today without some of its signature calling cards, such as Chocobos, Moogles, Bahamut, Ultima Weapons, Killing God, Sid, and many others. But each game is distinct, bound together with the threads of tradition woven by the games that came before. Story delivery is different despite themes being similar, mechanics and combat are altered to change the way you interact with the world and how the story is delivered to you. 
Reinvention is the spirit of Final Fantasy. If you ask any Final Fantasy fan what things a game needs to be a Final Fantasy game, you're going to get a variety of different answers. For some people, turn-based combat is the lifeblood of any classic FF experience. For others, a story that touches them on an emotional level is the most important thing. And others still will tell you a cast of memorable characters that they can bond and relate to is something that is non-negotiable. I even did a whole episode on this premise with a panel of guests who have more gaming experience than I could ever hope to have. And while the discussion was good, there was no objective, concrete definition of what truly makes Final Fantasy Final Fantasy. This is to be expected of a franchise approaching four decades of existence with 16 mainline games and countless spin-offs. And it is this very question that makes the Final Fantasy fanbase one of the most divisive in gaming. If you ask me, this question is largely subjective. With so many games telling so many stories involving so many different characters, your conscious definition of what it means to be a Final Fantasy game will vary greatly from one person to the next. Your perception is going to be largely based on where you entered the series and what your experience has been with RPGs prior. I entered the series with Final Fantasy IX. Up until then, my RPG experience had been slim to none, perhaps beginning in earnest with Super Mario RPG, but because it was such a profound first experience, Nine has gone on not only to define in my mind what I think of as Final Fantasy, but RPGs as a whole. Whenever someone asks me what I think of Final Fantasy, it is always through the lens of Nine, the adventures of self-discovery with Zidane and friends, always at the forefront of my mind. Nine's ATB system is the quintessential FF combat system. The emotional stories of Zidane trying to discover who he is, Vivi grappling with his existence and fear of death, Steiner's conflicting will between his sworn duty and what is morally right. That is what I think of when someone asks me about Final Fantasy. A large portion of Final Fantasy fans first experienced the franchise with Final Fantasy VII, which was not only a landmark RPG for the PlayStation 1, but a landmark video game that shifted the way people felt about the genre in the West. There's no questioning the popularity of FF7, a title that has basically become a franchise unto itself, with so many spin-offs, prequels, movies, and most recently a remake that is less of a remake and more of a unique twist on the telling of Seven's story. But it is because Final Fantasy reinvents itself so often that makes it so divisive. Aspects of one game that resonate with fans may be conspicuously absent in the next title, there are so many titles to pick from, it's so easy to point to a different game and say, I like what this game did better, in light of the most recent release. This is the environment in which Square's most recent iteration, Final Fantasy XVI, was released. From the very beginning, producer Naoki Yoshida has been very clear about one thing. This was a brand new direction for the series, intended to challenge longtime tropes in order to appeal to a wider audience. Yoshida's Creative Business Unit 3 helmed the development, the same team responsible for saving the beleaguered Final Fantasy XIV, reintroducing that game as a Realm Reborn and turning it into a juggernaut capable of challenging longtime MMO King World of Warcraft. When it was first announced, this information was incredibly well received. After two incredibly divisive titles in Final Fantasy XIII and Final Fantasy XV, Square turned to a team who had already had experience turning around floundering projects. So hope among the fan base was high that Square might finally be listening to their fans who were put off by the universes that the previous two titles tried to create around their worlds. The same would not be the case this time. 
CBU3 was focused on creating Final Fantasy 16 as a game, period. No movie that took away half of the lore, no cup noodle advertisement crossover, and no extended Fabula Nova Crystallis interconnected universe attempting to squeeze every last drop of profitability from each title. It truly seemed like Square was setting out to make the best possible game they could and change the recent negative perceptions around their most important franchise. It's been no secret throughout 16's development that the game's story and presentation was heavily influenced by HBO's Game of Thrones. Right around the start of early development, season 4 of the show was wrapping up and was arguably at the height of its popularity. In an interview with Game Informer, Naoki Yoshida even stated that the team purchased the first four seasons of the show and made watching it a homework assignment to get an understanding of the type of fantasy people were into at the current time. I've seen this as a criticism levied against 16 as long as it's been in development, and I have to think that people still have the bad taste of Thrones' mediocre final seasons in their mouths. I know it's cool to hate on popular media these days, believe me, I enjoy an ice cold haterade with the best of them from time to time. But it is worth stating that Game of Thrones was the pinnacle of television storytelling for most of the 2010s, and in my personal opinion, the early seasons of Game of Thrones still hold up the series single-handedly changed the way studios make television content, with such shows as The Rings of Power and The Witcher made as a direct response to Thrones. Now, I won't lie to you, some of the similarities found in 16 made me raise my eyebrow. It's definitely an interesting decision to base so much of your game's story and presentation on a series that was approaching maturity when you were just starting early development. But ultimately, I think this is fine. Part of Yoshida's goal in creating a new direction for Final Fantasy included setting a more mature tone, which was responsible for the game's M rating. Thrones pushed the boundaries for TV, so I see it as a fitting inspiration. Besides, Final Fantasy has always dealt with dark and mature themes. The nature of life and death, warfare, murder, these things have always been a part of Final Fantasy, just presented in a more lighthearted tone. And this is certainly the case in Final Fantasy 16. But Yoshida and his team simply presented these ideas in a much more graphic and at times gruesome manner, allowing these themes to be explored in a more realistic fashion. The world of 16 is focused on the land of Valisthea, a proxy for Thrones Westeros, with Valisthea being divided up into the continents of Storm and Ash. The resemblance between the two is immediate, the land being dotted by medieval architecture, European accents, and even many of the same nouns and titles. People in charge of armies are called Lord Commanders, royalty is referred to as Your Grace, and there are enough proper names and locations thrown at you that even the dev team got confused by it all. But there are very apparent differences. In Thrones, magic is treated as a mysterious entity that existed long ago, having all but faded from the world. Sixteen embraces magic as a real and present force, and is one of the best examples of a Final Fantasy game integrating that aspect into its story. Magic is a precious and abundant resource, one on which the nations of the world hinge their very existence. But not all can wield magic on a whim. People who can wield magic naturally by channeling either, the source of magic, are known as bearers, 
and 16 portrays bearers as second-class citizens, as people identified and marked at birth with a tattoo on their face, who are then sold into bondage for the wealthy elite who are mostly non-bearers. The bearers are then forced to use their natural magic skills on mundane tasks to make the elite's lives more comfortable, whether that is mining, starting fires, healing wounds, and the like. Now, if the non-magically inclined populace wished to use magic, they had to rely on crystals. And in the world of Valisthea, there are what are known as the five mother crystals, gigantic towering crystal structures taller than the highest mountains, which are a near limitless source of ether and magic. The core nations of this land have fought for control of the mother crystals for as long as they can remember, and these mother crystals are then mined into smaller shards and provided to the populace so that they can use magic for everyday chores and luxuries. You'll see several scenes of characters pulling out crystals to light cigarettes, treating magic as a trifle and not as a precious resource. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, that all sounds very high fantasy, and you would be correct, but rest assured, the classic Final Fantasy story we've come to know and love is there, just beneath the surface. Just when you begin to think that this might be Square's most tame and watered-down story to date, the major subterfuge and convoluted story of people behind the scenes who are actually pulling all the strings appear to reassure you that yes, this story is going to do Final Fantasy things, and it's going to be fantastic. And during the later half of the game, the plot shifts solely to focus on those Final Fantasy elements, leaving much of the Game of Thrones-esque storytelling and political strife behind as heroes and reluctant allies join forces to face the greater looming threat. Don't get me wrong, the political strife between nations and the status of people who aren't the ruling elite do make for an intriguing world that feels alive. In fact, I wish we had a bit more time to explore that aspect of the world. But I am here for the classic Final Fantasy tropes that reassert themselves in the second half of 16. Without spoiling, a divine threat does present itself, and in classic Square fashion, a climactic showdown with God is all but inevitable. It is in this world, against the backdrop of all of this political turmoil, that we meet our protagonist, Clive Rossfield. And while there are a fantastic cast of characters that surround Clive, do not be fooled, Final Fantasy 16 is, at its core, his story. Clive is the eldest son of the Archduke of the Duchy of Rosaria. This position would normally make him heir to the throne, but there's one more wrinkle in the established order of this world. Certain people are blessed by the power of icons, mythical elemental beasts that wield terrible power, and these people are called dominants. These icons are the classic summons of Final Fantasy you've come to know and love, counting the Phoenix, Shiva, Odin, Bahamut, and others among their number. Each nation has dominance that can summon the power of these icons and make them beings capable of immense destruction, often turning the tide of battles single-handedly. Clive was expected to be born with the power of his bloodline's icon, the Phoenix, making him the dominant of fire. But in a twist, Clive's brother Joshua, the second born of the family, receives this power instead making him their new heir to the throne and causing a young Clive to take up his role as Joshua's shield, his brother's sworn protector. Through a series of tragedies that unfold during the first part of the game, which begin during the intense demo that Square Enix made available before the game's release, Clive comes to discover that he is a second dominant of fire and can summon the power of Ifrit. At the climax of the demo, due to the treachery of plotting nations and the unexpected emergence of Ifrit, 
Rosaria is destroyed and Clive finds himself as one of the aforementioned branded in service of the Holy Empire of Sam Breck. It isn't until we meet one of 16's best characters, Sidolphus Telamon, aka 16 Sid, that Clive's path becomes more clear. Sid is a charming rogue who just so happens to be the dominant of lightning, able to summon the power of the icon Rama. Sid takes Clive to his ragtag band of deserters, bearers, criminals, and the like, explaining to Clive his true goal behind everything he does. Sid wishes to upend the social order of the world that has created so much inequality and suffering. He wishes to tear down the elite and free the bearers from their bondage. The way he intends to do this is by destroying the very source of magic in the world, the Mother Crystals, which he determines is also responsible for the horrid blight that is rapidly spreading across the world, choking life out of once livable land, leaving it blackened and dead. While spending time with Sid, Clive dedicates himself to Sid's vision of a new world, and this is what propels Clive forward through the rest of the story as he fights to improve the fortunes of those society has deemed less important simply because of who they are at birth. This is the core of Final Fantasy XVI's story, and I found these themes not only striking, but very relevant to today's societal climate. Clive's struggle to win justice and equality for those that the societal structure discriminates against and abuses is a mirror of some of the current fights for rights and equality that we are still fighting today. Game of Thrones discusses these themes as well, as Daenerys Targaryen often speaks about breaking the wheel of society that continually runs over the downtrodden and less fortunate. 16 is also an examination of humanity and free will, a common topic that Final Fantasy games have touched on before. As the game hurdles towards its conclusion, this argument takes center stage, with the powers that be basically blaming all of the problems of the world on the very thing that makes humans unique, the will to choose their own path and destiny. This is ultimately why Clive fights, not only to win equality and fair treatment for marginalized groups, but to protect the very thing that makes us human, ultimately arguing that, while yes, humans are flawed, and at times can make the worst decisions. We deserve the right to choose for ourselves and fight for a better future. For any future where we don't have a right to choose is no future at all. More than this though, I find 16's take on the series staple crystals the most interesting concept of all. Crystals have been used before in many Final Fantasy games, most often as a source of power or good. 16 goes out of its way to establish its crystals in the same light, telling us that the major nations of the world sprung up around these mother crystals, basking in the glow of their blessing and even mining them to harness the power of magic. Sid's ideals fly in stark contrast to this established order as he blames the existence of the mother crystals for the blight swallowing up major portions of the continent. The mother crystals channel Aether, the life essence of the world and the power that fuels magic. And as it does, it chokes the land, making it unlivable. Only a few people, Sid's band mostly, accept this truth. Most turn a blind eye to it, refusing to believe that the very thing that makes their lives easier is also killing their home. Now, I try my hardest not to focus too much on real life issues on my show. My intent is always to have a place for you to escape from the real world for a little bit while listening to the story of video games. But in this case, this particular theme caught me off guard in its relevance to our real world situation and I can't help but feel it was intentional by the 16 team to talk about this issue specifically. 
a fantasy society that has used a precious resource to make advancements, making the life of its citizens easier while marginalizing the less fortunate has obvious parallels to the way our own world is operating. Even more eye-opening is the realization by a small but ever-growing segment of society that the very thing they depend on for the luxuries they enjoy may also be causing permanent damage to the land they live in. The very mother crystals they venerate for their protection and blessing are draining the world of its aether, the very life force of the world, choking the land and making vast swaths of the continent of Valisthea unlivable. In many ways, this is a reflection of our current world. The technological and industrial advances in our lifetime alone have made what used to be a difficult life much easier in comparison to our predecessors hundreds of years ago. But this has come at a cost. And whether you buy into climate change is irrelevant. Humans have left an irreversible mark on the world as a result of our attempted mastery over nature to the point where people are realizing that the resources we consume to sustain our lifestyle are beginning to affect the world we live in, making certain areas of the world much more difficult to live in than before. When the story does eventually make a turn into Final Fantasy territory during the later half of the game, it is revealed the Mother Crystals do serve an alternate, more sinister purpose, as many things in Final Fantasy often do. But this, more than most of 16's themes, stuck with me long after I finished my initial playthrough. Regardless of your feelings, the world is ours to protect, and we have to think long and hard about the things we take for granted now, because they may have long-term effects that might not be obvious at first. One last thing I wanted to touch on is a character I feel is just as integral to the story as Clive, Sid, and many others, and that is, of course, Jill Warwick. Jill is a political hostage taken from the Northern Territories due to a conflict between those territories and Rosaria before the events of the main game. Archduke of Rosaria Elwyn Rossfield, Clive and Joshua's father, decides that Jill should be raised as part of the family alongside his sons. And over the years, Jill becomes close to both brothers, but especially Clive. In the aftermath of Rosaria's destruction, Jill is taken prisoner by a rival nation where it is discovered that she is the dominant of Shiva, Warden of Ice. After the events of the early game, she and Clive reunite and join with Sid in his quest to change the world, and Jill becomes an integral part of the story, joining Clive as a party member and taking part in many of the events that begin to reshape the world. Towards the middle of the story, she even gets an incredible redemption arc as she returns to the land of her captors to destroy its mother crystal. Throughout the story, Clive struggles with the sins of his past and struggles to come to terms with what he has done and what he is trying to do. The game gives him as the main protagonist a fantastic arc to accept what he has done and make peace with it. The fact that the game goes out of the way to give Jill a similar arc is pretty incredible, and it was very cathartic for Jill to be able to face her abusers and get the closure she desperately wanted. It's also incredible that Clive realizes that even though the world is in trouble, that Jill needs and wants this, and makes a decision to go with her for support. Sure, it helps that the Mother Crystal just happens to be where they're going, but still. Unlike other Final Fantasy entries, eventually Clive and Jill's relationship evolves into a full-blown romance, with Sixteen not afraid to explore intimate feelings between its characters. So, for all of these reasons, it is then baffling that towards the end of the game, Jill is essentially shelved. Now, for story reasons, I understand why she was put on the sideline, and I know this is ultimately Clive's story, 
But I found her story arc one of the most compelling in the game, and Clive's relationship to Jill is a big part of who he is as a character. For her to be absent from the conclusion of the narrative the game has been building up for 40 hours felt disappointing. This is similar to the way that Kingdom Hearts ultimately treats Kyrie. The game bends over backwards to tell us how important she is, but Kingdom Hearts ultimately finds ways to sideline her in the most pivotal moments. Perhaps there's meaning there that I just don't see or understand. Maybe additional playthroughs will change the way I feel about how they treated Jill in the end. But for now, I think she deserved to play a much larger role in the finale. Other than that, I found the story to be great from start to finish. The world and characters were fleshed out enough to keep me invested. I have heard gripes and complaints that the story tends to slow way down at points. And I would agree, this is a symptom of 16's intense action sequences, which I'll touch on in a moment when we talk about gameplay. Final Fantasy 16 is a game of peaks and valleys, with the game's spectacular action scenes involving the icons shown off in every piece of marketing material. When the story builds to a crescendo, that peak is incredibly high, producing some of the most controller-gripping, sweat-producing spectacular encounters in the entire series. After these narrative highs, there's nowhere else to go but down into a valley. The same criticism gets lobbed at the game's side quests, which are often categorized as generic fetch quests that serve no purpose other than to pad the playtime. And while I can understand this criticism, I think there are side quests that definitely do not fit this description. There are some side quests that focus on specific characters, or that do offer us a deeper glimpse into the world of the average everyday person who lives in Valsthea. One of my favorite side quests is working with the blacksmith during a time where he loses confidence in his craft, despairing that his work can't possibly measure up to the great smiths and craftsmen of the world. And I personally connected with this quest, as I too have often felt the same way about the things I create, comparing them unfairly to my contemporaries who are more skilled and have more time to devote to their creation. Believe me, I get how slow the sections that follow the action feel and how some of the side quests aren't fulfilling, but I've been playing Square games for a long time and I always appreciate a lull in the action to collect myself and analyze what just happened, as well as a side quest or two that reminds you that outside of the grand adventures and battles between elemental forces of nature, life is pretty mundane most of the time. The story of Clive and this world had my attention from the start, and in my opinion, it's the best Final Fantasy has been in the last two decades. There's one more aspect of story delivery that I need to praise, and that is of course the active time lore system. This was implemented while the game was being developed, as Yoshida often got feedback that the developers were having a hard time following the story that was being crafted. This was an issue, and if the dev team was struggling, then so too would some players. Since 16 was being billed as the most accessible and approachable Final Fantasy game in order to appeal to a new audience, Yoshida needed to make sure that players could easily understand what was going on at all times. And thus, the idea for active time lore was born. At any point during the game's cutscenes, players can pause and open up the active time lore menu, which will then present the player with several options to choose from. All of the topics presented are related to the current scene, including main characters, locations, events happening in the world, or historical lore tidbits to put deeper conversations into perspective. This is one aspect of the game I constantly see praise, and I agree wholeheartedly with that sentiment. As a longtime Kingdom Hearts lore junkie, believe me when I tell you that Square stories can be complex. This system is absolutely incredible and needs to be implemented in more games. 
I found myself pausing during the start of every cutscene to check out the active time lore to get just a little bit more context about what was happening and who was involved. And I think this gave me a much greater appreciation of the world and characters of Final Fantasy 16. It felt engaging to be able to get more details this way, like the game was rewarding my curiosity by wanting to know more about the world. This isn't the first time games have offered expanded lore. Again, Kingdom Hearts famously does this in the journal and through the use of secret reports, but this is the least intrusive and best way a system like this has ever been implemented, giving the player access to extra information in real time, any time they want it. Allow me to set the proper expectations as we move into gameplay. Final Fantasy XVI's combat is probably one of the simplest and most approachable systems in the entire series. It focuses on being flashy and cool, lacking the depth or complexity of other Final Fantasies. I would say it certainly doesn't rise to the level of its sister series, Kingdom Hearts, which by KH3 had mastered action combat by mixing the experimentation of earlier titles. And for longtime fans, I understand the frustration. I love a great turn-based RPG as much as the next person. Turn-based Final Fantasies are some of my favorite games of all time, but turn-based combat alone does not a Final Fantasy game make. I can see why this change wouldn't be received positively by all. Combat is one of the primary ways you interact with a Final Fantasy game after all, but this shift to action wasn't sudden. In fact, it's been coming for quite a long time now. And I would argue that every game since Final Fantasy X has been slowly transitioning to a more action-focused combat system. The Gambit system and Paradigm system of 12 and 13 respectively allowed for flashier action that felt like it was taking place in real time, despite maintaining elements of turn-based and ATB systems that predate them. Final Fantasy XV pushed the combat even closer to action by initially allowing players to only control Noctis directly and allowing more free-flowing combat in XV's open world. In my opinion, Final Fantasy VII Remake's version of mixing action and turn-based combat is the closest we've come to a realization of that dream. But XVI took the plunge and leaned fully into action, bringing on Devil May Cry combat specialist Ryota Suzuki from Capcom, as well as getting help from Tai Yasue's Kingdom Hearts team and a team from Platinum Games. This shift towards action was intentional. Final Fantasy XVI producer Naoki Yoshida even said as much. In multiple interviews, he expressed that 16 would be a departure for the series, that it was designed to appeal to a broader audience as tastes in video games have shifted over the years. With the success of over-the-shoulder third-person action games like God of War and The Last of Us, it made sense to make a game in that style and to include a combat system that was simple to grasp but still made the player feel cool and powerful. Couple that with a story inspired by Game of Thrones, and you had the makings of a game that could attract outside fans. Everything the 16 team did was intentional towards its goals, to make a game that had appeal beyond the general Final Fantasy fanbase and to tell a full and complete story. These aspects were essential as the last two games, 13 and 15, were fragmented across different media and games to extract every last dollar from fans. Clive's combat abilities center around his skill with a sword and the power he draws from his icons. 
Players press square to perform a basic sword combo that serves as the foundation of fighting. Attacks that connect with enemies take away health and chip away at their stagger bar, a secondary bar that will cause an enemy to be stunned if depleted. Clive's abilities are then augmented by the different icon powers he has exposure to at different points in the game. You can have the powers of up to three icons equipped at any time and are able to cycle through them during battle. Holding R2 and pressing square or triangle will use one of the equipped abilities associated with that icon, unleashing a flashy move that can be chained into other attacks. Once used, the ability goes on a predetermined cooldown until it can be used again. Each icon also has a unique ability assigned to circle that alters different aspects of the battle. With the Phoenix equipped, for example, you can press circle to execute a far step that instantly closes the gap between Clive and an enemy you are locked onto. With Garuda equipped, pressing circle sends out a grasping claw that grabs enemies and pulls them in closer. And for larger enemies, the grab can temporarily stun them when they've reached the halfway mark of their stagger bar. There are some elements of RPG systems here as well. Each battle gives you XP that allows you to level up, as well as giving you ability points you can spend on your icon abilities to level them up. This is where a bit of the depth comes into play for the combat, as leveling up and mastering certain icon abilities allows them to be assigned to any icon that you have equipped, allowing you to mix and match damaging moves with special icon abilities assigned to Circle, which are locked to their assigned icons. There are items present as well, available for purchase or craftable at the blacksmith, that offer stat boosts and other benefits. Item slots also serve to alter the game's difficulty. At the very beginning, you are given several items that can change how hard the game is. There's items for auto healing, helping with dodge timing, and others that can help you progress through the game if you want it to be easier. I'm sure you've seen the infamous social media clip of a man eating food hitting square as the game basically plays itself. But beyond that, you only have three item slots, and the selection of items that significantly alter stats and abilities outside of the very carefully curated progression of the first playthrough is pretty lacking. This overall RPG system is incredibly light and almost feels like it was included because it's a Final Fantasy game. I never felt like changing items affected my character significantly. The only time I felt slight noticeable differences was changing weapons to get a bit more damage and stagger. It almost feels like the light RPG system was included out of expectation. This is Final Fantasy after all, it needs to have an RPG system. That's not saying an action game can't have an RPG system. Again, I think Kingdom Hearts has perfected this as the RPG system in those games offer significant changes to your abilities and mobility to feel significant. Kingdom Hearts was designed to be that way, however. Final Fantasy 16's combat at its base is designed to be how it is. So any significant ability that would drastically change the way Clive interacts with the game would not work. Again, I don't think there's anything wrong with this. Final Fantasy combat systems can be incredibly complex and offer a great degree of customization and optimization. For new players, this would probably seem pretty overwhelming. And Yoshida and his team developed a basic set of commands for Clive, then augmented them with the different icon abilities to create an approachable combat system that still feels good. I never got tired of it in my 40 plus hour playthrough and getting to mix and match different abilities with different icons allowed me to find a style that worked for me inside of the limited confines of the system Yoshida and his team had created. Speaking 
of the icons, these giant elemental gods are the stars of 16's spectacular action set pieces. And while they are few and far between, each conflict between icons crescendos into an earth-shattering showdown that is absolutely jaw-dropping. It is very clear that Yoshida and his team spent a lot of time working on these parts of the game, making sure they were every bit as intense as showcased in the trailers and marketing. Again, I've heard the criticism, mechanically they aren't that complicated, and at times have prolonged sequences of cinematic action that are little more than flashy quick-time events. Believe me, I get it. QTEs are so 2010s, and there's not any inherent skill in pressing a button when prompted, especially when the windows for these button presses are so big. But I'm here to tell you, I do not care. Not one bit. These sequences are so fucking cool. They are designed to make you feel the power of the icons, these beings that control the very elements themselves. And just when you think they can't get any more intense, they do. Square pushes them just a bit further than you would expect to ratchet up the intensity. And you feel it. Well, at least I did. These moments had me sitting up straight, jumping up from my couch, gripping my controller tighter than I remember in recent memory, and actually sweating. In a series that is known for its spectacle, the FF16 team produced peak spectacle. And I am here for it at an unreasonably healthy level. People have come to love the shocking and touching narrative in games like The Last of Us, the third-person style of action game that Sony has become known for as the gold standard of interactive storytelling. I would take this over any of that 10 times out of 10. Give me a 10-minute climactic showdown with Laser Dragon Bahamut on the edge of outer space over an apocalyptic trek across the country any day of the week. This is peak fiction, and it's what I value most of all in video games. An escape from my everyday world of work and worry into one where I can fight Bahamut in the upper atmosphere. Realism and groundedness have its place, but this is what I come to Final Fantasy for and why I adore Square's sometimes nonsensical storytelling and delivery. One final thing to mention before rounding out gameplay is the ever-present, ever-faithful, and bestest boy of Final Fantasy XVI, and that is, of course, Torgal. He is your canine companion and constant friend through all of your adventures in the lands of Balisthea. He has his own set of commands that utilize the D-pad, and you can command him to Sick, which is his basic attack, Ravage, a secondary attack that will launch small enemies into the air, and Heal, which will allow Torgal to restore a part of your health bar with a howl. Now, I'll be 100% honest, there were large parts of the game where I forgot Torgal was with me in battle. In the middle of combos and dodging, I just didn't integrate his commands into my larger string of attacks. There's an equipable item that will allow him to take actions on his own, but I chose to prioritize my three equipment slots on items that would boost my stats instead. This does not mean that Torgal isn't a great character or a great companion. After being separated from Clive during the downfall of Rosaria, Clive and Torgal find their way back to each other years later when Clive meets Sid and the two pick up right where they left off. There is more to their relationship than just owner and pet, master and servant. Clive genuinely relies on Torgal's companionship in hard times. There are so many fights against giant creatures and literal elemental gods where Torgal seems way out of his league, but he does not waver, stepping up time and again to fight alongside Clive and his companions. He plays an important part in more than a few key scenes, 
and has quickly established himself at or near the top of my list of best video game doggos. My life today is busier than it has ever been. Between work, adult responsibilities, and my relationships to my family and friends, it is a rare game that can draw me in so completely and make me lose track of time. But for the month that I devoured 16, it was all I could think about. All I wanted to do in the few fleeting moments I had to myself every day was experience more of that world, that story, until I had fully uncovered what was truly going on. When the credits finally rolled, I sat on my couch in silence for several minutes, reflecting on what I had just experienced. And I will admit, this was where I started to become incredibly anxious about my experience with Final Fantasy 16. As I inch closer to the game's conclusion and engage with the general discourse around the game, I found myself disheartened. Now I know negative discourse on the internet is always the loudest and always the most visible, but I constantly saw complaints, negative comments, even downright nasty attacks on what kind of game 16 was. This isn't a traditional Final Fantasy, they would say. It's boring, it's easy, the story is lame. There they go ruining Final Fantasy with this Kingdom Hearts nonsense again. The combat is too shallow. Clive is the worst protagonist in Final Fantasy. And here I was, having the time of my life with what I genuinely consider a really great game. One of the best Final Fantasy experiences in years. And when I wanted to reach out and share my experiences, I was met with a wave of pessimism and division. Video games are very much a part of my identity, so when I encountered this discourse, it caused me to retreat back. I spent a lot of time thinking about this game, its strengths and weaknesses, what it was trying to tell me, and what I experienced. All of these thoughts swirled around in my head. Was I missing something? Was there something there that I couldn't see? Was my blind loyalty to Square Enix clouding my critical judgment? Why was I feeling guilty for enjoying something? In the end, I broke out of this cloud. The negative words and thoughts of people determined to be as miserable as possible on the internet are always going to be louder and more hostile than those who genuinely enjoy their experiences. These are a small but vocal minority that may seem the largest, but that's just because they are so loud. I did find people who loved their experience with 16 and upon talking to them, validated my thinking and reasoning, realizing that this game, this experience had connected with others in the way it had connected with me. And ultimately I realized I didn't need that validation. My experience with Final Fantasy 16 was purely unique. It was wholly my own. And that is what I preach on this show. It is the story of video games and your experiences with them. Not angry Twitter trolls, not critics, not anyone else. Don't let them take that away from you just because you enjoy something that they don't. At the end of writing this episode, I can proudly say that I loved my time with Final Fantasy 16. It is without a doubt the best Final Fantasy to come out in a long time, and it is my personal favorite Final Fantasy since Final Fantasy IX. And one more thing that makes this game one of the best in recent memory is that it is, for all intents and purposes, complete. There was no grand plan to have an extended universe built around it, no multimedia strategy that included movies, mobile games, shows, and other forms of media. There isn't even a plan as of this recording for DLC. Naoki Yoshida was very clear in his interviews that his team set out to craft a complete story and experience for Final Fantasy XVI, stating that they had no plans or intentions for DLC to expand on the story or the world. 
And in today's industry landscape, given the positions that Square Enix has taken on things like NFTs, that is incredibly rare. Odds are if the game is very successful, that extra content will come sooner or later, but it was never on the forefront of Yoshida's mind. His team set out to craft a complete experience that would captivate veteran Final Fantasy fans and appeal to a newer audience. And I think in these aspects, they have definitely succeeded. As I finished writing this piece, I thought back to the beginning. The first things I wrote trying to define what Final Fantasy is, and based on my feelings, I can say that 16 does indeed check the Final Fantasy boxes. The game has once again reinvented the series to appeal to a wider audience. It delivers an at-first simple but increasingly complex narrative that tackles a lot of deep topics, some that are incredibly relevant in today's discourse. It has a cast of characters that are very well done and are able to connect with the player. And despite not being involved at all, it's somehow still Tetsuya Nomura's fault. But most defining of all, it has divided the fanbase once again. 16 is simultaneously the best game in the series and also the one that has ruined the series completely. It is beloved by some, hated by others, with a spectrum of opinions in between. And at the end of the day, there's nothing more Final Fantasy than that. Oh.